Side Hustle Show 204, your legal questions answered. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show, where aspiring part-time entrepreneurs learn how to turn their side hustle dreams into reality. Because your nine to five may make you a living, but your five to nine makes you alive. And now your host, Nick Loper. What's up, what's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show. When you're starting a business, the legal rules and the red tape and the regulations can be really daunting and intimidating. And quite frankly, they can be the roadblock that prevent you from starting your business in the first place. Now, for that reason, I invited Elizabeth Potts Weinstein on the show. She's a small business attorney who helps entrepreneurs, artists, coaches, freelancers, consultants, and online publishers like us get the legal stuff out of the way so they can get back to helping their clients and doing what we do best, right? You can find her at elizabethpw.com. In this episode, we cover what disclaimers you need to have on your website, business registration requirements, entity selection, pros and cons, trademarks and copyrights, and licensing, product licensing. The uh, The conversation centers on United States laws and regulations. She's a California-based attorney and covers clients in the United States, but you'll probably find similar rules in your country if you're listening from one of the 200-plus companies or countries in the world that isn't America. Now, since it might be helpful to see some of this in writing, I compiled a free PDF highlight reel with all of Elizabeth's top tips and recommendations. You can download that at sidehustlenation.com slash legal. Before we dive in, let me take a moment to thank today's sponsor, FreshBooks.com. The all-new FreshBooks is transforming how freelancers, side hustlers, and small business owners like us deal with our day-to-day paperwork. The award-winning cloud accounting software has been redesigned from the ground up and custom built to save you time, money, and headache. Visit freshbooks.com slash side hustle to start your 30-day free trial today. I'll be back to tell you a little more about FreshBooks plus my top takeaways from this chat with Elizabeth after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. Elizabeth is here to help answer our legal questions from the Side Hustle Nation community. You can find that group if you're not already a member at sidehustlenation.com slash FB. So the first one comes in from Amelia and she says, hey, there are tons of folks entering the health and wellness space. What are the basic disclaimers non-medical professionals such as herself or non, I guess, accredited nurses, dietitians, et cetera? What are the basic disclaimers that I should have on my website? You really want to think about this from the perspective of want to make sure that everyone who looks at your website or or your future clients and customers are just aware of the fact that you're not a nurse, that you're not a nutritionist, that you're not a doctor, right? You just want to make sure that they're completely aware of the reality of the situation of of your qualifications, of what you're qualified to do from a legal perspective and what advice you are actually giving. So there's a couple of different places where you're going to state that. Some of this is required legally and some of this is actually just kind of a good idea. I recommend that you know, on the bottom of your website, like typically in a footer, you're going to have a short disclaimer that will just end up showing everywhere on your website. And this will be a place where you can say, this is not medical advice. If you need medical advice, you need to go to your doctor. I am not a, and then whatever you're not, right? So maybe, you know, maybe you're a such and such kind of health coach that you had got a, you know, certification from somewhere, but you're not a, and then you list the things that you're not, right? But a lot of people aren't going to read the footer. I actually do scroll down to footers because, you know, I'm a lawyer. So (laughs) I do read all that stuff because I'm like that, but a lot of people don't. So 
where people are actually looking at things on your website, you want to put those disclosures there too. Because the thing is, that's where people are going to be making decisions. And you want to make sure that they're not confused and they're not going to be misled. And how much you go into things really depends on the situation and what you're selling or just talking about. So sometimes if you're writing a blog post about something, you may need to put a disclosure right there in the blog post itself. And that would be to satisfy FTC regulations. Sometimes you may need to be putting a disclosure right next to a buy button. And a lot of times you're going to be needing to put disclosures, actually always you're going to be needing to put disclosures in your terms or your contract with your clients or customers, which of course depends on if they're buying, if it's going to be like a terms and conditions if they're buying off a website. And if they're like, if you're like a health coach, you probably, or you should have a written contract with your coaching clients. And then you would be disclosure in there saying who you are and who you're not. Part of this is because you want to comply with laws, but part of this is because you don't want to mislead people. Yeah. Yeah, you see similar language on financial sites. Like, hey, this is mm-hmm. not a solicitation of investment. I am not a certified financial planner, whatever the qualifications are. So you have that kind of in the footer site wide. And then you have it like for affiliate products and you will put that in the post itself. So if I'm on the health and wellness space and I really like this supplement pill that's amazing, these statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. But hey, you have to disclaim like, like, on each and every link, like I am, I'm not a doctor. And by the way, this is an affiliate link. Well, you know, there's a reasonableness standard to a certain extent. You need to do it in a way that makes sense. Now, the rules are incredibly vague and they're incredibly difficult to comply with. If you go to the Federal Trade Commission's website, which I have gone to and I've gone through all these things with some of my clients, Sometimes for the health and wellness space, but also for other areas that are similar where we're like trying to figure out, okay, how do we disclose the fact that this is an advertisement here? There isn't necessarily a regulation that deals enough with the specificities. We're kind of making a reasonable determination of what we think the disclosure would be. And so my recommendation for clients is like, look, we're going to try to do what we think is right. And I mean that from a We might not know the right legal answer for sure, but we're going to do what we think is a good moral thing to do because then we can make a good argument because we know, you know what? We weren't trying to mess anybody over. Yeah. My understanding of the FTC requirements specifically for affiliate stuff was like they want to clean up or at least disclose reviews. So if I'm reviewing hosting company XYZ and I'm making a fatty affiliate commission on the back of that, it would be important for the reader of that review to know that there is a financial stake on my end versus, hey, in my podcast notes, for example, if you mention some book, like I'll link that up in the show notes for the episode and link that with my Amazon affiliate link or Amazon associates link. And I don't necessarily disclose that, yeah, those are associates links for each one of those versus like if, you know, it's a full on review. I don't know. What's your, (laughs) what's your take on that? (laughs) For your show, Because the context of it is, it's like you have advertising in your show, right? And you're going to have promotional things. People would expect that you're going to have advertising stuff. The context of it is, is there, right? So a lot of it, and they actually talk about this, a lot of it is context. And so people would expect that you're going to have ads and that there's going to be promotional things and promotional links. 
very different than someone who's a blogger and all of their posts look like very objective reviews. And it doesn't look like, I mean, now in this day and age, we kind of know, but someone who doesn't know how this world works, right? They think these are all objective, completely 100% objective reviews where there's no affiliate links because maybe they don't even know what affiliate links are because your average person actually doesn't. You and I know, and probably a lot of the people listening know what affiliate links are, but your average person doesn't. And so putting that information there is really important because the context isn't there otherwise. Yeah. Let's move on to Dharmesh. She asks, when is the right time to register a business entity if I'm starting out and want to start selling products online? So, you know, this is a question that goes to what does it mean to register as a business entity? Those two words, register, three words, and business entity are actually two different concepts. Let's take the second one first. Business entity could mean a bunch of different things. And I'm going to actually talk about the United States law because what it means in other countries is even more complicated. And I'm not an expert in that. I know some of those things, and that could just be a giant mess. We could talk about that for a long time. Yeah, and, and apologies, because we did have several EU-related questions, but we're going to have to focus on on U.S. law for this stuff. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, we could just get into a whole big thing and bring in a bunch of other experts. So business entity means the type of legal organization of your business. So if you're an individual person and you just start selling stuff, services, products, you're a sole proprietor. You just are that automatically. Like You don't have to do anything. If you're two people or more people who start a business, you're automatically a general partnership. You don't have to do anything. You're just like that. No filing requirement at all. Right. And you don't even have to know that you are. It's accidental in a way, which is scary because you're liable for what your business partner does. You're personally liable for what your business partner does. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually like, it's scary because if your business partner signs a loan or does crazy stuff, whatever, as part of the business, obviously, you're liable for that. And there's obviously been lots of lawsuits <laughs> about that stuff. Okay. Then you can also, though, decide, as many people do, I don't want to just be that because of all the inherent problems involved. Or maybe you want tax planning or you want to just appear more business-like. So you decide to form a limited liability company or a corporation. The other issue is registering. Do you need to actually register with someone, some sort of government entity? Yeah. And that really depends on where you are physically. Now, you may say, I do my business online. I'm nowhere physically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've dealt with yeah, this. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so my answer is, you're still a human person. And you still are physically somewhere. Now, where you are physically is sometimes an interesting question because I do have clients who move all the time, who are world travelers. And so sometimes where they are physically is this weird question because they are in different places every three months. And so, yeah. and actually in that case, I have clients where we incorporate an LLC in like Nevada, sometimes just so we can figure out, okay, here's where you are. <laughs> You're now in Nevada. <laughs> the world is not set up for you people. Yeah. You need a home yeah, base. Yeah, like we need to have an address for you. You need a place. There's no income tax in Nevada or corporate tax in Nevada. It just simplifies things for them. So under that logic, why wouldn't everybody just set up a PO box in Nevada and say, well, that's what my address right. is? So for, let's say, let's say for me as a lawyer, and this is kind of an example of why I can't do it. 
because I have a service-based business where I, and I'm physically located here in California, even though I actually don't ever see my clients in person, I actually do service all my clients over the phone and over the internet and don't have a physical office. I deal with clients working from home. I still am physically here in California and I'm licensed to practice in California. And as such, I have to actually be registered to do business in California. I'm also a corporation in California. Mm -hmm. My law firm is a corporation in California, so it got a little bit more complicated, but I didn't have to be. I chose to do that. So I could be a sole proprietorship in California. And if I formed, I actually legally wouldn't be allowed to, to form an LLC in Nevada because I'm a lawyer, but putting that aside, let's say I was a graphic designer or something, so I didn't have the law thing to deal with. Okay. If I formed an LLC in Nevada, because I'm physically located in California and I was doing graphic design work or something like that for people, what would happen is that that might work for a little while. I might be able to see clients, get paid through my LLC in Nevada for some odd months until I went to pay my personal income taxes. Because the problem is, is you still have an address here in California, in my example. And you're still going to have your residence here in California and be paying your personal income taxes here and filing them in Cali out of as someone in California. And California is going to say, you have a business here in California. And so we want our cut. Now, I actually am here in the Bay Area. And so someone who is in a city like San Francisco or San Jose or Los Angeles that also has business licenses that are required, that city is going to say, oh, we checked the California database and we see that you have a business located in this city. Oh my gosh, that's, that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> so I owed three years of local business registration taxes and I had no idea because it was like, look, I'm working completely online. I was completely oblivious to it. And so it was a kind of a big check I had to write to the city and they taxed on top line revenue versus bottom line profit. And I was like, you got to understand there's a difference between these two things, but they didn't care. And it's just like, it was a, it was a really weird thing. So definitely check with your local city for what business license requirements. The funny thing is the next town over is a flat $50 per year fee yeah. versus a percentage of, of sales. So it's just a weird, weird local stuff yes. that, that comes up. Too. Yeah, it's very bizarre. So like here in San Jose, California, it's a flat fee. But in, in many other places, it exactly, it's based on your top line revenue, which is completely wrong, in my opinion, because it's completely inappropriate. Now, if you're a sole proprietor, do you have to worry about that too? Or you, they're still going to get you for that? They still may get you for that, but it does, it just depends on whether or not your local town checks the state database and they may or may not. It really is bizarre. It's not necessarily based on how big the city is. Some smaller towns will pull the database. Some bigger towns don't have their act together. Also, there's weird local rules about zoning for there's a business occupation permit, a home occupation permit that you need to get in some places. Dude, I had to apply for that too. <laughs> yeah. Some places don't have it. And it really can be an issue for certain kinds of businesses. So for a lot of businesses, if you're, you know, a consultant or you're the graphic designer, it's not being a big deal. If you have a business where maybe you're doing like you're shipping monthly boxes, for example, or 
You have two employees who come to your house and work for you part-time sometimes. There's a place where you actually may run into a problem running a business out of your home. And it especially can come up where not just them checking the state database, but if your neighbors get mad because UPS is coming to your house every day to pick up a gazillion boxes for your monthly subscription service that you're running out of your house or because you have employees come to your house or clients come to your house. In some cities, it's actually illegal to have a business. It's legal under their zoning law. It's not like they don't arrest you. (laughs) They just find you. But it's against their zoning rules, their ordinances. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A. A-N-D-S dot com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. Can you speak to the pros and cons of sole proprietorship versus LLC versus S Corp, C Corp, you know, all of these different registration options and which might be appropriate for someone and at what stage of their business? Right. I'll kind of first talk to the person who's like an individual person by themselves starting a business. So if you're starting a business by yourself, there's Three categories of things to think about if you want to form either a corporation or an LLC or just stay a sole proprietorship, which is the automatic, least expensive way. One is sometimes people start to form the LLC or corporation really from a marketing perspective because the kind of business they want to run will look better if they're an LLC or corporation. Perhaps the kind of clients they're trying to get are big companies. And so they need to be an LLC or a corporation because those big clients are never going to sign a contract with them unless they look a lot bigger than they are. Or just from a presentation perspective on their website, whatever it is. So in a lot of ways, it's like a PR kind of marketing thing. So sometimes it's just about that. So instead of like Nick Loper marketing, sole proprietorship, I could rename that the premier group or something, you know, something like vague and that seems like much bigger than me and still run it as sole proprietorship, right? Totally. Yeah. Because then it would just be a DBA or fictitious business name, which you would register either at the state or the county level, depending upon which state you're in. And that would be something you could totally do that would work from a marketing perspective. Okay. Now on the contract side, sometimes that's not enough for doing business with big companies. Sometimes big companies want you to be incorporated because they don't want any danger that you'll be viewed by the government as an employee. Um, especially here in California, a lot of companies are really worried that they hire independent contractors or freelancers, that those people will be viewed as employees. So they want everyone that's a freelancer to be an LLC or something. Oh, interesting. So that that way it's like there's this layer of, mm-hmm. we just hired the services of this 
third-party company, not an individual person. Exactly. Who, okay, okay. Let's go back to the entity structuring thing first. The second thing is about taxes. And a lot of people really think it's going to be this amazing tax savings. The tax savings isn't about whether you're an LLC or a corporation. It's about taking advantage of the S-corporation tax status. The S-corporation tax status, you can take advantage of that if your business is either an LLC or a corporation, which is bizarre to say, but is how it works because it's just a tax status. It's not the kind of entity you are, either an LLC or a corporation can be an S-corporation tax status. So the S-corporation tax status, one of the things you can do there if you're able to take advantage of it is that you can be the owner-employee where you pay yourself as an employee where you have to take out all the payroll taxes and FICAs and all that jazz. And then also pay yourself just as the owner. And then when you pay yourself as the owner, you don't have to pay all that self-employment tax stuff. So you end up saving a bit on taxes. The issue is all the complexities of doing all that payroll and having to file the S-Corp tax return and all that stuff adds typically two grand a year in admin costs for a one-person business that's relatively simple. So you need to be saving at least two grand in taxes. Is there a certain revenue level where beyond that, it's a no-brainer? Yeah. I mean, when you're actually paying yourself a hundred grand, then yeah, most likely it makes sense to do. Okay. When you're paying yourself 50 grand, then I'd say you need to start doing the calculation to see if it makes sense. Okay. Is that an entity you can switch to after, say, I'm going to be a sole proprietor for simplicity's sake. Hey, and now this business is growing. Maybe it's no longer a side hustle. Maybe it's my full-time thing. Can I re-register now as an S-Corp or an LLC with an S-Corp election? Yeah. So there's different ways to do it. So some clients I'll have, we'll start them out as a sole proprietorship, the most simple way. And then they'll later on switch to an LLC. And then it'll be an LLC that's set up to be taxed as a sole proprietorship. And then they'll later on switch to be an LLC taxed as an escort. So you can switch these things, but every time you switch, there's like all this stuff to do. Like paperwork and restructuring bank accounts or what's... When you change from your tax status from a sole proprietorship to an escort, you can only do that once a year. So it's not something you would go back and forth doing. It is also a big paperwork change because you go from paying yourself kind of relatively casually to actually running payroll in a much more formal way, which can be really good for people to be much more formal in their business, but it's a big deal. I commonly have people who start out one way and then after they know this business actually is making money, then we set up things much more. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Go go lean at the beginning, especially in the state of California, we have an eight hundred dollar franchise fee just for setting up that LLC. So right, kind of crazy stuff. So, and the third element, I'm guessing, is like the liability side. Right. Yeah, and and that really depends on the kind of business. So, some businesses have very minimal liability. If you're providing services that are the kind of services where you're personally providing all the services, they're your recommendations. You are in control of not being terrible, <laughs> then you really have a lot of influence over how much liability you have. Okay. Then you can manage the liability by having written contracts, by having good insurance, doing a lot of other things that 
can make it such that your sole proprietorship doesn't have as much risk as it might have otherwise. Okay. Versus other businesses, if you have employees, if you have business partners, and that goes to a, the person who isn't a one person business, if you have a business that has a physical location. So, you know, I have a client who has a monthly subscription business and she decided to open up a storefront. Well, she crossed the line. Like now we're forming the LLC. She's not going to have a sole proprietorship anymore because she has yeah. human beings who are going to walk in the store and they could break a leg. You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just, we're, she has insurance for that, but there's just so much more potential liability there. And that's the idea is there's putting the LLC or the corporation there shields you and actually not just having the LLC or corporation, but then also doing all the right stuff. Because <laughs> sometimes I have clients who they form an LLC on you know, LegalZoom or whatever, but then they actually don't do anything with it. They don't set up a bank account. They don't sign contracts in the name of the LLC. They don't put the name of the LLC in, on the footer of their website. And then it kind of doesn't really help them at all. So yeah, okay. you need to set it up and then actually do all the rest of the stuff too. And then it puts all your business in a little bubble keeps it away from you and your house and your finance. Yeah. If you're selling like a popular business model would be like selling physical products on Amazon, where generally it's going to be low liability stuff, like not selling hopefully like skydiving equipment, I think was the example from a recent <laughs> episode, something like that. Like, is that something you would still be concerned about? I mean, especially if it's imported. I don't know. Yeah. You know, with products, I mean, generally, I think one of the issues I think about too is do you know your customers or clients and how much interaction do you have with them? I think of this as the, what's the potential for crazy people to be interact <laughs> with you and your business? So I have some clients where all of their clients, they know, they really get to pick who their clients are. They pick who they do business with because, you know, they have the kind of business where they only have five or 10 clients at a time. They have a relatively low risk business in the sense of they get to really handpick their clients. But if you have a business where the transactions happen without you handpicking anything, you know, that just happens automatically, there's a potential for crazy people <laughs> arriving in, in your life. Right. Well, you never know who's going to order your thing on Amazon. Right. And one of those people could decide to sue you. And you may be 100% right. There's nothing you did wrong. But they could still choose to suit you because people think that just because you have a business, you're like somehow amazingly rich person. People have crazy ideas like that. So you still would have to deal with hiring a lawyer or whatever to like deal with this crazy person. Um, now, of course, you may want to have insurance to pay for this lawyer. The reason to have insurance, one of the reasons to have insurance is to do that. But also having an LLC or corporation puts a shield between these people that you can't really do that much about that, even though having terms and conditions and things like that can help with some of that. Obviously, the Amazon example is the Amazon terms and conditions. But okay. having some of a shield helps keeping all that stuff inside the LLC or corporation as opposed to them getting at you and suing you personally. Gotcha. Dane's got a question here about how to properly use intellectual property, trademarks, and copyright for his idea. And specifically, he's asking about a potential product of his or a potential course that would use another company's or another kind of registered trademark in the name of it. He gives the fake example of like the Google game plan and trying to figure out how much of that is allowed versus are you setting yourself up for, for trouble down the road using somebody else's name as part of your product? It really depends on which name you use. 
which is a, I know kind of a non-answer in a way, but because it does. So obviously, whoever owns a trademark for the Google such and such, whatever, they own the rights over that. And how they decide to protect that, what rules they set up really depends upon the company and their philosophy of how they enforce their trademark rights. So companies like Google, Facebook, Disney, all these big companies where not only do they have that trademark, but they have a whole lot of people out there who create businesses about teaching people how to use their stuff or access their stuff or tour their stuff, right? And these companies have created entire systems and you can go on their websites and find it about how to use their intellectual property, the rules of how to use their intellectual property and what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Actually, you see dozens of examples of this, like in the online space, you have courses like Learn Scrivener Fast, which is like a writing software or Evernote Essentials, like learn how to use Evernote. I mean, it's hard to describe what the thing is without using the name of the thing. Yes. So there's a couple different issues involved. So first, let's take the super easy example. If you're just writing a review, the reason it's okay is because it's fair use. It's actually specifically in the law saying it's fair use. It's not a copyright violation. It's not a trademark violation. It's fair use to write a review. But this isn't that, right? Because you're actually selling something and making money off of it. The such and such guide to such and such. However, you are like promoting their thing, right? So it seems like this is actually going to help them. However, you're leveraging their trademark to make money. So how does that work? Now, big companies that are sophisticated, like Facebook, let's say, as an example, because I was able to quickly pull up their, <laughs> their brand resource center, they actually have created, big companies have created brand resource centers or trademark guidelines that tell you exactly what you're allowed to do or not do. So For example, if you just Google Facebook trademark guidelines or Facebook brand resources, the big companies have created entire mini websites to tell you what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do and what permission you need to get. So would you recommend just like reaching out and asking like, hey, would it be cool if I am thinking of putting together this course or, you know, whatever it is, is that like, I don't know. Like, I'm always, I'm always more on the like, hey, I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. But it seems like maybe in this case, if you're going to build your whole business around it to maybe get the okay first. I understand what you mean, because I'm that way too about many things in life, because I'm the person who'll just like walk down the hallway and not supposed to walk down and pretend that I'm supposed to be there. <laughs> but this is one of those cases that if you don't, the big companies, especially will totally sue you. Yeah. Oh, they're sending you cease and desist letter first. But I recommend that first you go to see if they have a trademark guidelines or brand resources. And if it answers your question, then you're done. And that's easy. If they don't have anything like that, then you have to approach it from an artful way. And also thinking about who do you approach? And so sometimes I don't approach legal. Sometimes I approach marketing or PR. They may have to eventually go to legal, but it depends on who it is. And also thinking about maybe I don't need to put the name of it in the title. And it depends upon what kind of product you're offering. And I know this is me being a total lawyer who's a total downer. <laughs> People want to make these um, these great products. And it really does depend upon the company. Sometimes there are companies, it is well known in the industry that they let people use certain aspects of their trademarks and things to a certain extent. 
I know that Disney, even though Disney is completely protective of their trademarks and copyrights, they do let bloggers use certain things to a certain extent to promote Disney World and traveling to Disney World and, and Disney yeah. and all that stuff. But it's like in certain ways. And the bloggers kind of know, like, you know, th- there's like this whole culture around that. And so that may be part of it, too, getting involved in the culture of all the people who are promoting that stuff that you want to want to be involved in. Yeah. Well, the Disney example is a good one. So we got a book on our shelf. It says this is the unofficial guide to Disney World. or It's like the mm-hmm. unofficial guide to Disney World for grownups or something like that. Is like, is putting unofficial enough to say like, hey, I'm not affiliated with these guys? And it's probably from a major publisher too. Yeah. Disney, I think, is an example of my understanding is that they're cool with stuff as long as you're promoting <laughs> Disney World and Disneyland and you're not saying anything, you know, bad. You're positive and overall, you know, right? You may say that the lines are wrong, but here's the strategy for getting around the lines, right? That's the idea. Like, they want you to promote their stuff. They're cool with that. And they want to make sure you're not doing anything, you know, bad on your website. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a culture around that. And you have to figure out what that is and what the history is of how they enforce their trademarks and copyrights. Where there's other companies that they go after everybody. And I know, for example, with like Facebook, I have an acquaintance who used to be the all of her talks and all of her programs used to have Facebook in the title. And then all of a sudden they didn't. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I know what happened. I was not her attorney, but I know what, what the story was because then she got a cease and desist letter and she was totally promoting their, you know, how to spend money on their ads. Right. Like how to learn Facebook ads or something like that. It's a perfect example. Yeah. And she was good and she was totally helping them make money. But they were like, no, dude, you cannot use our trademarks it just depends upon the culture of that company and how they enforce their stuff weird yeah i've been on the receiving end of those scary cease and desist letters and it's it's kind of intimidating like i had the shoe site for years and years and years and one of the spin-offs that i made was for a specific model of shoe called new balance 992 and the domain new balance 992.com like this is like their flagship running shoe it was at the time and it's like, oh my gosh, this domain is available. This is awesome. And so me being young and naive, just registered the domain, put up a very, very simple site and sold a ton of those shoes. And six months later, they're like, yeah, sorry, that's not allowed. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> oh, you know, but I'm selling your product. And they're like, you know, this is brand confusion. People are going to think it's our website and it looked really, really crappy. So I could see how they would be upset about that. But it was just a good learning moment, like kind of be careful with other people's trademarks. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over three and a half million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. 
And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Now, on the flip side of that, I want to ask you, when is it appropriate or is it ever or is it financially worthwhile to register your own trademark? Say I've got Side Hustle Nation, for example, like should I go to the trademark office and try and register that as a name? Yeah, you know, registering a trademark, it's a question that, you know, a lot of people ask me because there's an expense involved and not just hiring a lawyer to do it because you could also do it yourself, even though it can be confusing. (laughs) And so so a lot of times people come to me because they messed it up somehow. But registering a trademark has an expense because you have to pay the trademark office a whole bunch of fees if you try to, to file a trademark. And so how much off the top of your head, like ballpark, how much it costs? When you try to file an application to register a trademark with the United States Patent and Trademark Office and you do it online, it's $275 per class. What a class means, it's like the category of your product or service. And you could do it for one, which is a lot of my clients, or you could do it for three or a whole lot. Most of the people I do it for is like one, two, or three. But sometimes people do it for a whole bunch. Like Nike owns it for some of their, for Nike, <laughs> for, you know, and just do it and stuff like that. I don't even know how many they own, right? Yeah. For how many have... categories. For most people, having one or two or three for their main trademark is fine. What does that get you? Because I've also heard trademark is only valuable to the extent you have the budget to defend it, should anybody come around to try and infringe upon it. So what it gets you is that then you have a presumption that you have dibs over that phrase. That means that if you sent a cease and desist letter to someone who started a podcast, right, with the exact same title somewhere in the United States, you could send them a cease and desist letter and you would have the presumption that you were the first person as of the date when you started this podcast. Okay. So if then you sued them, so first you'd actually have to file a lawsuit, right? Yeah. Most of the time when you send a cease and desist letter and you actually have a registered trademark, if someone just started a podcast, they're going to be like, fine, okay, I'll just start it something with a new name. I mean, most people fold. Yeah, which is exactly that's exactly what I did with the New Balance site. Occasionally, the person you're sending a cease and desist letter will either be crazy or they will be a big company who has a big budget and is a jerk. 
So then you will actually have to decide if you're going to sue them because this is obviously a very valuable name to you. And so then you file a lawsuit. The good part is because you have a federally registered trademark, then when you actually sue them, you have this presumption that you had first dibs as of that date. They would have to come in and show either they had it actually before you and your trademark is wrong, and they would have to prove that because the default is that you have it. They would have to overcome your proof, or they have to somehow show that somebody else had it, like some other third party in the trademark office hadn't had that information or or whatever. In a normal lawsuit, you're the one who has to prove stuff because you're the one who filed the lawsuit, but it like shifts the burden. So it is a powerful thing, but the issue is it's true. Like you do have to have that budget. So I have some clients who actually want to create a certification program. Maybe they're a life coach and they want to certify other life coaches to do their same kind of coaching. Oh, like underneath your brand. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then you have to have a trademark because you need to be licensing people to do that thing. So it really depends upon also the future of your business. Yeah. Okay. Actually, we had a question actually from Dina about licensing, specifically about creating coursework to license to organizations or associations for their members as kind of a, a customized learning platform. So trademark would be a good idea for one, it sounds like. Any other considerations on the licensing side of things? Yeah. I mean, so when you're thinking about licensing out your work to other organizations, you're going to be looking at, it depends on what they're going to be doing. Obviously, this is going to be something you're going to be doing in writing. You're going to want to define what exactly you're licensing out to them. You're probably going to be licensing out some kind of copyrighted material. So this may be written materials. When I say written, it could be physical hard copies, but it could also be electronic copies. It could be videos, audios. You could also be licensing out trade secrets. Okay. Now, just by the mere act of creating this writing that like, this is my work, it's copyrighted by default, right? Right. And as soon as you memorialize, in other words, make something into a hard copy or electronic copy, then it is copyrighted automatically. You can also register something with a copyright office. And if you're going to actually be licensing things out to people, that can be a good idea just in case it ever becomes an issue. And it's something you can do yourself. You can just go to copyright.gov. You don't necessarily need a lawyer to help. Okay. And the protection there would be like if somebody you were licensing to tried to all of a sudden pass it off as their own work. Right. And also, you can't sue someone for copyright infringement until you register it. Oh, okay. (laughs) So you are going to have to do it eventually. If it ever came up, once you have it registered, then you can sue them. Also, if you register something within the few months of when you originally created, then you can get statutory fees. The statutory fees are great because it means you don't necessarily have to prove up what your damages are. Sometimes it can be really hard to prove up damages. In a licensing case, that's not as true because they owe you fees under the licensing arrangement, under the contract. But it can be really hard to prove what damages are if someone took your photo and put it on the internet. Yeah. Well, this is interesting because there's a whole cottage industry for pirating Kindle books, for pirating online courses. And so if you have gone through the trouble of going to copyright.gov and saying, this is my thing, you can get money out of these <laughs> like pirates? Well, I mean, if you can find them. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, that's one. The thing is, a lot of these people are not necessarily findable. Yeah. And they may not be in the States anyways. Right. I mean, the best thing you can do there is figure out where they're hosted and find a host that is located in the United States or in a place that is some host that will respond to DMCA requests and get it taken down. 
Can you explain really quick what DMCA is? Right. So DMCA, people can Google DMCA, is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. That's a United States law, but there's similar laws in many other countries. The DMCA has this structure that has this thing called a takedown notice. So if you have a copyrighted work, you can send this notice to whoever is the website host. So let's say it's Facebook, for example, and you have a photo that someone stole from you and put on Facebook. You can send it, fill out this form on Facebook that they have these forms because I've done it <laughs> and okay. for clients. And, and then fill out the form saying, this is my copyrighted work. Here's a link to where it's my original. Not saying you have to prove it's your copyright, but you have to give them a little bit of evidence that it's your copyrighted work. And then they usually will take it down and send a message to the other side saying, the copyright holder said this was theirs. I took it down. And if it's not, you need to prove up that it's not. And then if they're a bad guy, usually they just like slither away <laughs> is, is what happens. Yeah. So you can go to like whoishostingthis.com or something to find out who's hosting the site. And you know, I've had to go through this process when somebody was just blatantly copying and pasting my stuff. And I was like, hey, you know, what's what's your deal? You know, you try the contact form first. Of course, they ignore that. Then you go to the DMCA thing. In the worst case, you can go to Google and get them de-indexed when you follow the same complaint with Google. So interesting stuff. Elizabeth, we're definitely gonna have to have you back to do round two of this game <laughs> for it because like there's a million more legal questions that I have that listeners have. I want to thank you for joining me again, ElizabethPW.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip. It doesn't have to be legal for Side Hustle Nation. All this legal stuff, including forming a business entity. And a lot of people think all this stuff is scary or intimidating or they want to avoid it. This stuff is really just about communicating. It doesn't need to be difficult or complex or messy. It really is just about setting expectations, communicating things with your clients or customers, and making sure everything is clear for everybody. Because the point of this isn't about making the government happy or your lawyer happy or any of this. The point of this is so you can deliver your products and services to your clients or customers and for you to be able to make money in the most efficient way possible. Well, very good. Thank you so much. And we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. This edition of The Side Hustle Show is brought to you by FreshBooks. You just heard all about how to get your legal house in order. But what about your financial house? That's where FreshBooks comes in. Since my voice is kind of shot today, I'm going to hand this one over to my friend and freelance writer extraordinaire, Miranda Marquette from PlantingMoneySeeds.com to hear why she relies on FreshBooks. This is Miranda Marquette from PlantingMoneySeeds.com and Adulting.tv. I use FreshBooks and I have been using FreshBooks for several years now. And I love FreshBooks because it gives me the chance to quickly and easily invoice clients and get paid. There are so many great features on FreshBooks from recurring invoices to templates to the fact that I can easily log in and see my dashboard and see who has paid and who needs a reminder to pay me. And here's the deal. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day full featured free trial for Side Hustle Show listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash side hustle and enter the Side Hustle Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com slash side hustle for your free 30-day trial. All right, my top takeaways from this call with Elizabeth. Number one, 
these regulations are here for your protection too. Despite what might seem like unnecessary and unfair burdens, most economies in the world want to encourage small business activity. And on the flip side, they want to encourage people to do business with those companies. And that's why we have these hoops to jump through to keep everybody safe. At least that's what I try to tell myself when I'm uh, jumping through said hoops. Takeaway number two, learn the high-level rules and leave the details to the pros. There are going to be different nuances in every niche, in every situation. But I think one thing Elizabeth said that really stood out was, look, be upfront, be honest, take the moral high road first because it's the right thing to do. And second, because it makes it so much easier to defend. Takeaway number three, it's going to be okay. A combination of naivete and geography has put me on the receiving end of the cease and desist letters, uh, local licensing requirements, and even having to move my business to a completely different state for a period of time. It can be scary and it can be frustrating, but you deal with it, you figure it out, and you keep going. I don't want anyone to not pursue their idea for fear of legal problems. So if you're like really paralyzed by this stuff, uh, definitely call Elizabeth. She'll help you dot your I's and cross your T's. I want to thank everyone who submitted questions in the Facebook group for this episode. If you haven't joined, uh, you can do so at your leisure at sidehustlenation.com slash FB. It'll redirect you over there. If you have a legal question that we didn't cover, be sure to drop it in the comments of this episode at sidehustlenation.com slash legal. I'll see if I can get Elizabeth to chime in on those or worst case, we'll have her back for a round two episode to get some, some of the questions that we didn't cover here. And uh, maybe we'll find somebody else for some of these international ones uh, that, that popped up. While you're there at sidehustlenation.com slash legal, you can download the free PDF highlight reel with a summary of all the topics covered in today's show. Again, that's sidehustlenation.com slash legal. All right, you ready for a dad joke? This will be your reward for sticking around to the very end of the episode. Uh, what's the difference between illegal and unlawful? All right, you give up. One is against the law and the other is a sick bird. Anyways, that's it for me. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there, make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to The Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com. 